The greatest of Paul's 13 letters that we have in the New Testament is his letter to the church at Rome. Romans. It is in Romans that we find the closest thing to a systematic explanation of the gospel. And in that letter, Paul emphasizes the grace of God that is found in the gospel. Well, we are embarking upon a study of the letter of Romans in our Sunday morning gatherings. And so this morning, we are beginning with the very first verse of the very first chapter as we start looking at the greeting that Paul uh, put at the introduction of this letter to introduce himself to that church. It's found on page 939 of the Bibles that are provided for you. If you're using one of those, if you don't have one of those, please open a copy of the scriptures that you have available and follow along because we're going to work our way through these first seven verses, part of the introduction that contain the greeting that he is giving to the church at Rome. And it'll be helpful for you to have those words in front of you as we make our way through them. So hear the word of the Lord as I read from Romans Chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, down through verse 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had never been to Rome when he wrote this letter. So he had no personal experience with the church. He did know some of the members of this church and had worked with them. And he knew about some of the other members of the church that he had received information concerning. This lack of a personal relationship with the church informs his greeting. He introduces himself at the beginning of the letter by highlighting his call to be an apostle and also the nature of his work as an apostle. And what we learn from this greeting is this, that as an apostle of Christ Jesus, Paul proclaims the gospel which is for everyone. Paul understood the message that he had received about Jesus was not a tribal message. It's a universal message. It's for all people everywhere. I want to study these seven verses with you this morning by looking at what they teach us about four specific things. We will see what they say about Paul himself, what they say secondly about the gospel, what they say about Paul's apostleship, his stewardship of that gospel, and then finally what they say about the recipients of this letter. So what does this greeting teach us about Paul? He introduces himself right off the bat using his Roman name, Paul, and he describes himself first as a servant of Christ Jesus. Jesus. This was a title of honor and a title of devotion. The word servant means bondservant or slave. Slavery was widespread in the Roman Empire when Paul wrote this letter. And being the slave in a prominent household was a point of 
honor and pride for slaves. In Rome, there were many who were servants or slaves of Caesar's household. And so they would often introduce themselves, I am a slave of Caesar. Paul owned his status as a servant, bondservant, slave of Jesus Christ as a badge of honor because he would rather serve nobody else. He would rather be related to no one else than Jesus Christ the Lord. It's also a title of devotion. It indicates that as a slave, he is completely sold out to a master. Again, these Romans would have understood that a slave entirely belongs to another person. A slave has one thing to think about, and that is, what does my master desire? What is my master's will? Well, Paul understood that he was devoted to Christ and joyfully gave to him absolute obedience. Paul loved to call himself the bondservant, the slave of Jesus Christ. He does it elsewhere. We see it in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. We see it in the way he opens his letter to the church at Philippi, describing himself that way. But he didn't just see it for himself. He saw it for every Christian. This is the way Paul understood Christianity. And so he refers to those in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 who had never been a slave to any human master by reminding them that you are nevertheless, though free from men, a slave, a bondservant to Jesus Christ. In his 1979 song, Bob Dylan wrote this, You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble or like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yeah, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil. It may be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Dylan was right. You right now are serving somebody. You're somebody's slave. Paul understood that. And he had lived as a slave to sin and the devil for most of his life until Jesus came and revealed himself to Paul. And Paul then was transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son of God's love. And he became a slave of Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 34, that whoever sins is a slave to sin. Paul writes later in this letter to Rome that the the that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if everybody sinned, and Jesus says, if you sin, you're a slave to sin, you know what that means. Every one of us has come into this room today either having been a slave to sin or remaining a slave to sin right now. Either you are a slave to Jesus or you are a slave to sin. If you will turn from sin and trust Jesus, you'll be delivered from the bondage that would destroy you and enter into the freedom, the joyful delight of living for one who shed his blood for you. Brothers and sisters, if we could remember this simple, basic truth, it would clear up so much confusion in our lives. 
It would save us from so many headaches, so many heartaches, so many missteps, so many of the challenges that tend to overwhelm us all stem from forgetting this. Just think about it for a moment. Isn't it true that many of the things that we are facing that are real difficulties in our lives actually stem from the fact that we made decisions without considering, I'm a slave of Jesus. Think back to the last week, the last month, the last year. Have you made your decisions about how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you work in your relationships with a foremost thought that you are Jesus' slave? If we remember that, then we would save ourselves a lot of difficulties. If you're a Christian, Jesus is your master. You are his slave. Paul understood that. So the very first thing that he says about himself in this masterful letter is that he is a bond servant of Christ Jesus. He goes on to describe himself as one called to be an apostle. That word apostle means one who is sent. And Paul here is using it in a formal and technical way. He is writing this letter with apostolic authority. He's not writing simply for his own purposes, on his own whims. No, he's writing as a man who has been commissioned. Paul, like the other apostles, had seen the risen Christ, though he didn't see him immediately after his resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he describes how Jesus came to him long after he had been raised from the dead and made himself known. Paul was commissioned to preach the gospel of Christ specifically to the Gentiles. You can read in Acts chapter 9, when he was converted, he received that commission specifically. He reiterates it to these Roman Christians in chapter 15 of this letter when he describes how God had set him apart for that specific purpose. This was the Lord's work that the Lord had called him to do. He didn't seek out the office of apostle. He didn't promote himself. He was put in it by God. God did it. He says it very plainly in his letter to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Listen to the way he describes it. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Set apart. God purposed it from before the foundation of the world. When he was still in the womb, God had a purpose for him to be an apostle of Jesus Christ to preach primarily to the Gentiles. So he describes himself as a slave of Christ. He describes himself as called to be an apostle of Christ. But the third way that he describes himself in this greeting allows him to introduce the major theme of the whole letter. He says, set apart for the gospel gospel. It's the first of a dozen times that Paul will use this word in this letter. <clears throat> Paul spends the bulk of his time in this letter explaining the gospel, this good news, answering objections to the message of salvation in Jesus Christ, and spelling out ethical implications of the gospel. He says he was set apart to proclaim it, 
It's the same word that I just read to you from Galatians 1.15. He had been set apart from before he was born. Now this is interesting that Paul would use this language because when Christ found him, when Christ came to him, he was a Pharisee. And a Pharisee was a part of a class of religious Jewish leaders that were regarded as set apart from others because of their strict adherence to the law. So Pharisees were seen as a people apart. And Paul says, yeah, I was a Pharisee when Jesus came and saved me and really set me apart. Set me apart from false religion. Set me apart from sin. Set me apart from living life on my own terms. God set him apart to serve the gospel. Brothers and sisters, you and I are, you and I are not apostles. There are no more apostles in this sense. They died with the ending of the first century and the closing of the canon. But you and I are bondservants of Jesus Christ. We're slaves. We have a master. And we have been given the apostolic message of Christ in the Bible. So we have responsibilities like Paul had to make Christ known. That's what we do in this church. It's what you're to do in your vocation, in your avocation. Whatever you do, day in and day out, you're to do it mindful of the fact that you belong to Jesus Christ and you've been given the gospel of Christ and you are to live in such a way as to put that gospel on display and you are to look for the opportunities to make that gospel known. Do it in your personal life. Do it in how you perform your work. Do it in your talk. The words you use. How you talk. Live that way in terms of your own priorities. Christian people are gospel people. Well, as soon as Paul mentions the gospel, he can't help himself but expound upon it. And so, after introducing himself, he specifically introduces this gospel to which he has been set apart. You notice he calls it the gospel of God, the gospel of God, the good news of God. It originates in God. It is revealed by God, and it is all about God. The gospel is an all-God gospel. Paul tells us two more things about the gospel in verses 2, 3, and 4. First, in verse 2, he says, this gospel was promised throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament Scriptures, he says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's a reference to the Old Testament. The message of Christ, the gospel, is not a novelty. It is not something that was invented in the first century. It was revealed throughout the Old Testament era in the Holy Scriptures, by way of promise. Now there are many specific promises in the Old Testament that refer to Jesus Christ. We've gone through the Christmas season. We looked at some of those Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. Earlier, Don read from Isaiah 49, which is a specific prophecy about Jesus Christ coming into the world to be the Savior of the whole world. But it's proper to see not just specific promises in the Old Testament referring to Christ, but the whole 
Old Testament as pointing forward to the person and work of Jesus. In that sense, the whole Old Testament reveals God's promise of salvation. The sacrificial system, the laws, the prophecies, they were all pointing forward to the coming of Messiah. When you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 about God's creating this world, you see in chapters 1 and 2, everything's good. God created a garden, and He told Adam and Eve to tend the garden and to make the world a garden. But the devil came and successfully tempted them, and they fell. They sinned. And in Adam's fall, we sinned all. The whole human race went down with him. But what does God do? Immediately in the wake of that failure, that sin. Well, he issues a curse to the devil. And in Genesis 3.15, he includes these words in that curse. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the promise. It's the gospel. The first time the gospel's ever hinted at in the Old Testament. The whole rest of the Old Testament is an expansion upon that promise. The promise that was fulfilled when Jesus came into the world and when He hung on the cross and the devil there is striking out and all he can do is bruise his heel. And what Jesus does is crush his head. It's promised in the Old Testament. Fulfilled in the New Testament. Brothers and sisters, this is why we need the Old Testament with the New. It's all, as Paul describes here, holy scriptures. There are at least 295 direct references to the Old Testament in the New Testament and hundreds of more allusions to the Old Testament. Paul, in Romans, cites the Old Testament scriptures at least 50 times and dozens of more times makes allusions to Old Testament passages. So don't let anybody tell you that we need to unhitch our Christian faith from the Old Testament. Those are our scriptures. They point toward Christ. They promise what we see in the New Testament being fulfilled. We ought to remember and recite to our children regularly that little memorable poem of Augustine that the New Testament is in the old concealed. And the Old Testament is in the new revealed. It's one book, one scripture revealing the promise of the gospel. Well, not only is the gospel promised in the Old Testament, Paul goes on and further describes it in verses 3 and 4 as the gospel concerning God's Son. Do you see that? Concerning His Son. And then he goes on and describes Him. Descendant of David, according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection. God's gospel concerns His Son. It's all about Jesus. The way we teach it here, how we encourage each other to remember the gospel, is that this is a message, it's good news. News about Jesus Christ. Who He is, what He's done, why that matters. And you see that operating in the way Paul goes on to elaborate the gospel concerning God's Son. He teaches us four truths here about Jesus in these verses 3 and 4. He says that He's God's Son. Just as John 3.16 elaborates, He's the only begotten Son of God. 
He's fully human. A direct descendant of King David according to the flesh. And thirdly, he's declared to be the sovereign Son of God. This happened through the Holy Spirit. Paul here refers to him as the Spirit of holiness. It happened by his resurrection. Now Paul's not saying that Jesus somehow became the sovereign Son of God at his resurrection, but rather that's where the appointment was made. That's where the declaration was set forth in unmistakable characteristic. He's contrasting Jesus' lowly status during his earthly ministry as a man, or as we say, his incarnation, to his exalted status after his resurrection. When Jesus came into the world, he was born of a virgin. He, he went through a birth canal. He grew up as a toddler, an infant, and, and a young person to become a man. He lived a genuine human life. And during his earthly life, he did not display or exercise all of the prerogatives of his deity. He didn't use everything that he could have used as God. But after his resurrection, he rules and he reigns in perfect power as the eternal Son of God. Listen to the way Paul elaborates this in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11. Paul writes there that although Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, something to be clung to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He was a real man who died a real death on a real cross. Then verse 9 of Philippians 2, Paul says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is now and forevermore will be known as the Sovereign Son of God. He is ruling right now in heaven. There's not a random molecule in this world that does not obey Jesus Christ. And one day he's going to come again. And then on that day, skeptics will be overwhelmed, convinced. Rebels will be feeling an overwhelming sense of despair because on that day, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess, Jesus, you're Lord. He is Lord. He's been declared to be the Lord of heaven and earth with power. His resurrection makes it known. Paul goes on to say he is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our Lord. That's the fourth thing. Not only Jesus, the man, also Christ, the Messiah, the anointed King, our Lord, the ruler of all things, the heir of the whole world. Paul says our Lord because he's speaking of himself and his readers, those Christians in Rome, those who are trusting Christ Jesus, those who have believed the gospel, been transformed by that gospel. He's confessing the common faith that all Christians everywhere confess. Can you call Jesus Christ Lord? Can you honestly say, yeah, 
He is my Lord. Are you counting on His life and death and resurrection to reconcile you to God? Are you dependent upon Him to make you acceptable to God? What do you believe about Jesus? Believe what the Bible says. He came into the world. He lived the life God requires of you that you cannot live. And He submitted Himself to death on the cross under the wrath of God against sin. And He did it so that anyone who would trust in Him might have His life of righteousness, His death atoning for sin credited to them. And God raised Him from the dead to demonstrate He is Lord of all. If you're trusting Christ that way, then declare it. Make it known. If Christ is your Lord, don't try to live secretly about that. Testify to it. Be baptized. Unite with the people of God who have themselves testified, Jesus Christ is Lord. Earlier when we read the Apostles' Creed, did you honestly confess the articles of that creed? Is it true for you? Is it a summary of your own faith? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God? If so, then live for Him. Declare your servanthood to Him and honor Him as Lord. The Gospel enables us to do that. The Gospel comes to us showing us our sin, showing us what God's done about our sin in Jesus. And by the power of the Spirit, when that Word is heard and believed, we are drawn out of our sin to faith in Christ. It reconciles sinners to God. That's what Paul elaborates on the rest of this letter. It's what we're going to be spending the next many months unpacking as we go through this letter of Romans. So Paul's introduced himself. He's introduced the gospel. Now in verses 5 and 6, he introduces his apostleship. He says, through whom? Through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. In these verses, we see both the goal and the scope of his apostolic ministry. What was the goal of Paul's ministry as an apostle? I mean, what was he shooting for? What was his target? How would he know if he had successfully met his goal? Well, his goal is summarized in that little phrase, the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. That's an important phrase. He uses it here at the beginning of the letter. He repeats it in chapter 16, verse 26, the next to last verse of this letter. It is the obedience that consists in faith. The gospel is a call to be heeded. It is a command to be obeyed. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You must obey that command. Come to me, Jesus said, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. You must obey that gracious invitation and heed it. God now, Paul says in Acts 17, commands all men everywhere to repent. And you must repent to have faith 
in Christ. To believe in Christ is to obey His command. To obey His command is to trust in Him. So saving faith obeys. And saving obedience believes. This is why Paul can write the way he does about these Roman Christians. Look at verse 8 here in chapter 1. He says that their faith is proclaimed in all the world. And then chapter 16, verse 9, he says that their obedience is known to all. Well, which is it? Their faith or their obedience? It is the obedience of faith. It is the genuine faith that results in a life of obedience. He says that's his goal, that people would come to the obedience of faith for the sake of Jesus in his name. So that Jesus will be known as the great and gracious King. So that those who claim his name actually honor his name and how they conduct themselves in their lives. The obedience of faith is bowing to Jesus as Lord, entrusting submission to Him at the outset of your relationship to Him, and continuing in that posture throughout the rest of your Christian life. Now, brothers and sisters, we need to be careful not to be confused at this point. Paul is not saying that you get right with God by your own obedience. There's nothing you can do that will provide the foundation of your relationship with God. That work has already been done. In chapter 5 of Romans, he's going to speak of Jesus' life and death and resurrection as the obedience of one man. That obedience is what justifies many when we have faith in Him. So it is Jesus' life, death, resurrection. Jesus' obedience that is the foundation of our salvation. His work, not ours, saves us. We receive Salvation through His life, death, and resurrection by faith alone. However, that faith which does actually receive Christ savingly is an obedient faith. It is a repentant faith. It submits to the Lordship of Jesus Christ by obeying Him. I can't underscore this too much. I wish, I wish I could somehow communicate what I feel about this because brothers and sisters there are many people who call themselves Christians who say I believe whose faith does not measure up to what Paul aimed at as an apostle it's not an obedient faith it's not a saving faith it could be Faith like the devils that James talks about in James 2. Could be just an intellectual faith. Yeah, I believe those things. But it's not a faith that results in a life of servitude to Christ. This is why Jesus does what He does at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, He says, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. There will be many, he said on that day, who will say, but Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We did miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. Jesus says on that day, I'm going to say to them, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, because I never knew you. Do you see how sober this is? 
Your eternity hangs on this. Jesus says there will be many on that day who will come to the place of judgment and say, Lord, Lord. And yet they had not obedience of faith and He will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. And they will be cast into hell with their superficial faith saying, but Lord, but Lord. Don't let that be you. Don't play around in your relationship to Jesus Christ. He is Lord. If you know Him savingly, you are His bondservant. And He calls you to live in humble obedience to Him out of a heart that is trusting. I wouldn't be a faithful pastor if I didn't set this kind of clear warning before you. Because on the day of judgment, if you, in all of your religious life, hear those horrible words from Jesus, depart from me, I never knew you, you practiced lawlessness. I don't want to be guilty of having you be able to say, why didn't you warn me? The gospel is designed to bring about the obedience of faith. A faith that results in a life of devotion and dedication to Jesus Christ. And if whatever you have is not resulting in that, throw it away. Come to Christ. Trust Him savingly. Call Him Lord. That's the goal of Paul's apostleship. Verses 5 and 6, he talks about the scope of it. Who's it for? He says, among all the nations, including you, called to belong to Jesus Christ. In other words, the whole world, the nations. This isn't just for Jews. This isn't just for certain people. This is for everyone. All the people groups of the world. Including those who at that time were in Rome. The gospel is an everybody gospel. It's for young people. It's for children. It's for old people. People of every race. Every ethnicity. Every tribe. Every language. You're here this morning. I want you to know the gospel is for you. Jesus is for you. You need to be reconciled to God. And Jesus came to do exactly that. And as you turn from sin and trust Him as Lord, you will experience this saving gospel that is for everyone. And that's our desire. That's what this church is about. That's why we preach this apostolic gospel. Children, don't don't think because you come to church, that's all you need. Don't believe that. Don't think because mom and dad are Christians that you're okay. Don't believe that. Come to Christ. Trust Christ as a child. He welcomes children, young people. Don't let yourself be gospel hardened because you know it. You heard it all before. Realize that Jesus Christ came into the world to save young people. And you need Christ. Come to Christ. Believe Christ now. Trust Him.
He will save you. Paul closes out his greeting by identifying the recipients of the letter and offers a blessing for them. And you see that in verse 7. He calls those in Rome loved by God. People that God had set His love on. When did He do that? He did it before the foundation of the world. Some mind-blowing truth that in love He predestined us. Ephesians 1.4 says. He manifested His love by sending His only begotten Son into the world to become one of us and to do everything necessary to make us right with God. If you're a Christian, then you've known the love of God even more particularly because He put people in your life to get this Gospel to you in time. And you're trusting Jesus today because of God's love. Just think about it. Think about the people who prayed for you. Think about the people who were patient with you. Think about the people who taught you the Gospel. What is that? Those are manifestations of God's love for you. Every Christian is beloved of God. He also identifies them as called by God. God worked in them in such a way they recognized His voice when He called them and they followed Him. He drew them to Christ. God does this for every person whom He saves. Right now, as the Gospel is being preached, you are being called through the proclamation of the Gospel, to be reconciled to God. But if you will be reconciled to God, it won't be because of the preacher. It will be because God takes His Word and effectually works it in you and He speaks with a voice that raises the dead. Just like He did with Lazarus. When Jesus stood before that tomb, His buddy had been dead for days. They roll the stone away and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And that dead man obeyed. That's what happens when God calls you. He gives you ears to hear. And he takes you from spiritual death to spiritual life. Oh, Father, do it now. Do it now. Wouldn't you hear Christ call you now? Throw away your sin. Confess Him as Lord. Be brought savingly to God by His call. The third thing that He does to describe the recipients is describe them as blessed of God with this apostolic blessing, grace and peace. This is typical of Paul. Grace, the free, spontaneous, unmerited, loving kindness of God shown to sinners that has as its root the very idea of joy. God gives joy to people who deserve the opposite, who deserve His wrath. And he does it in Christ. And so Paul prays that for the recipients. Brothers and sisters, we are people of grace. We've been graced by God. And peace. We think of peace as usually the cessation of war. The setting aside of arms. But in the Bible, in the Hebrew understanding, it's so much more than that. It means well-being. It means life. It means prosperity. It means everything that is good. And Paul says, I pray that for you. I pray that you will know grace and peace from God through Jesus Christ. That you will have fellowship with God and begin to live life the way it's intended to be lived. Grace and peace come only from God. Grace and peace come only through Jesus Christ. If you've never experienced God's grace or peace, today, today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ today. 
and you will experience it. So here in the opening greeting of the letter, Paul makes it clear that he's concerned about his ministry as an apostle. His responsibility to proclaim the gospel. The gospel that is for everyone because Christ is for everyone. He knows this gospel saves people. It makes people right with God when they believe it. So he gives his life to making it known. Brothers and sisters, we follow these apostolic footsteps in this church. This church exists to make known this apostolic gospel. To do it day in and day out in our regular lives. To do it by sending people to hard places to carry the gospel with them. We want to see People, like Paul wanted to see people brought to the obedience of faith here, Cape Coral, Southwest Florida, throughout the whole world. So if you don't know God savingly, come to know Him now. He calls you to come now. Trust Christ now. Where you are. Where you sit. Now. Confess Jesus Christ as Lord. He will save you. If you know Christ, praise God. And rejoice in that. And repent of any spiritual lethargy. And ask God to enable you to know Him better. To know Him more. To live wholeheartedly as the bondservant. The slave of the Lord Jesus. That's our desire. That's our need. That's our mission as a church. May God help us to follow in the example we see in the Apostle Paul. To carry it out. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. Forgive us for trifling with Your Word. Forgive us for disregarding Your Word. Forgive us for playing with our souls. I ask that Your Spirit would come and do what only He can do and teach us this Word. Seal to our hearts the things that are true that we've considered this morning. Glorify Your Son in our lives. For we pray in His name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing our closing song.